Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And as you may know, we have a channel on the network called the New Books Network Seminar. On this channel, we put books that we think will be of interest to a goodly portion of NBN listeners. Today, I'd like to present you with just such a book. It's called Going Alt-Ac, A Guide to Alternative Academic Careers. I know that many of the people that listen to the NBN are graduate students or recently minted PhDs. And I also know that they are probably looking for jobs. There are a lot of jobs out there. It's just that not many of them are tenured track professorships. The authors of this book tell you how to look for jobs, both in the university environment that is in academia and also outside academia. They offer little tips and tricks that you can use to land in just the right spot. This is very valuable advice, and I encourage you to take a look at the book if you are looking for an alt-act position. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Education, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Kevin Kelly, Thomas Tobin, and Katie Linder to discuss their new book, Going Alltech, A Guide to Alternative Academic Careers. This book provides a detailed guide on how the nitty-gritty steps of building a career outside of academia for those with doctorates or terminal degrees. Welcome, Kevin, Thomas, and Katie. Uh, Kevin, uh, you first. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been working in higher education for about 20 years now and have been working in Alt-Act roles pretty much that entire time, first through side gigs and now as a full-time higher ed consultant uh, specializing in different areas, including distance education, academic technology, strategic planning, professional development, and a lot more. Um, but I still continue to teach. This is year 20 of teaching at San Francisco State University as a part-time lecturer and um, currently involved in a number of research interests related to student success, retention, reducing equity gaps in online courses, and fostering metacognition. Okay. Tom, how about you? Hello, Zeb, and good to talk with you. I'm Tom Tobin. I'm the Program Area Director for Distance Teaching and Learning on the Learning Design Development and Innovation Team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I help to run an annual conference and I oversee our professional development operations. My background in Alt-Ac is uh, I've been a writer, author, and speaker for many years in areas that tend to scare the heck out of faculty members, things like copyright, uh, quality and technology-enhanced education, academic integrity, and those kinds of things. And one of the reasons that I really enjoyed writing this book was that there really wasn't a collection of advice that got down to the, here are the steps you actually need to take kind of stuff. So I'm glad to be talking with you today. Thank you so much. And Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Seb. So um, I'm Katie Linder. I am the executive director, as of about a week ago, I'm the executive director for program development with Kansas State Global Campus. And uh, my administrative career has skipped around a little bit, mostly in faculty or educational development work. I directed a center for teaching and learning. I also directed a research unit with Oregon State University eCampus, which is my most recent role. And um, like Tom and Kevin, I'm an author, a speaker, I do some podcasting and um, have been in this alternative academic role basically since I got out of grad school. So 
Um, and Katie, I think your position to give us a little history on this term, but some of our listeners not, might not be familiar with this term going or with all to act. And the book's title is going all to act. So tell us, what is it? Where does this term come from? Yeah, so I realized that people didn't always know what this term was, because as I've started including the book title in my bio, people keep referring to it as Alt-AC, and they don't know, they've never heard of it before. Um, so the idea of Alt-AC is basically that you would have an alternative academic pathway that as a PhD holder, you're not necessarily engaging in the tenure track. And for a long time, I think the the primary kind of golden ticket in higher ed was really to find that tenure track job. And over time, as we all know, those tenure track jobs have started to shrink quite a bit. And there's this kind of burgeoning community of folks who are outside of those tenure track roles, but who are doing really meaningful work using the training that they got out of their PhDs. So when we talk about alternative academic positions, we're really thinking about things outside of the tenure track that are probably adjacent in some way to higher education. Some people also think about alternative academics as being sometimes in the humanities, we're defining it actually quite a bit more broadly than that as roles that could even be outside of academia or higher education, but are very squarely using the skills that you gained when you were being trained in your PhD. So Kevin, I want to aim this one at you. Uh, And I think there's a few components to this. Why is this book specifically necessary? Well, going Alt-Dec is necessary because students earning doctorates or terminal degrees often do not receive much guidance about pursuing careers or shorter-term positions outside of the tenure track. We designed the book to support either people who choose not to follow a typical tenure track career or people who cannot find open tenure track positions in their field. The second group is growing. As Katie mentioned, there aren't that many tenure track positions available on an annual basis when we consider that the latest statistics show almost 200,000 people now earn a doctoral terminal degree in North America every year. So going Alt-Act makes graduate students, graduates, and even existing professionals aware of career possibilities that they may not have considered and guides them as they explore those possibilities. And what kinds of institutional support are available? Because that's one of the striking things to me as I read through this book, was this awareness that institutions in many cases haven't really reacted to the second development, which is the absence of tenure track positions. There are certain resources available at some institutions. Uh, For example, when individuals are with a partner who is also getting a doctoral or terminal degree, they sometimes have support for the couple to find either a, an alt-act position off campus or a position at a neighboring campus. But not every campus has those sets of resources available to people who are trying to figure out what they want to do after they earn their degree. So Katie, I want to go back to you. How will graduate students benefit from this book? As they are, I think, one of the key audiences. My hope is that graduate students will start to see alternative academic careers as something that is not kind of something they're settling for. And this is something that I think all of us feel pretty strongly about, that we have found incredibly meaningful work outside of the tenure track that is really a good use of our skills and abilities and our training. And at least when I was in graduate school, 
alternative academic careers were very much seen as a lesser than option. And my advisor was very nervous when I said I wanted to pursue faculty development, um, but I ended up being the only person in my cohort to get a job in the first year after I graduated. And after that, they started to kind of advise people, maybe you should be looking into this alternative academic career stuff because the discipline that I came out of, which is women and gender studies, as you can imagine, as an interdisciplinary field, people struggle to find jobs and there's not always jobs that are available. So I think for grad students, one of the key messages we're really trying to communicate in this book is that this is something that you can actively pursue that you shouldn't necessarily feel ashamed about or feel like you're settling for something that is, you know, um, lesser than in terms of a tenure track job. And that there are a ton of different possibilities that really open up the space of possibility for where you can be hired, the kind of institution you can work with, the kind of um, kind of clients that you might be working with, depending on the job that you're engaging in, and all these different creative ways to use the skills that you've developed as you earned your PhD. It also seems to me that there's a question here about how to approach it too. And that this is something that I have learned perhaps the hard way. Um, academic job searches, uh, searches and non-academic job searches are very different things. They're conducted differently. So how can graduate students benefit a little bit there? This is a really good question, Zeb, and one that I think maybe all of us wished that we had had a little more information about when we were in grad school and thinking about going on the job market. Um, you're absolutely right. Job materials look completely different. And I remember years ago, I was doing some consulting with a university that had me come in and work with their graduate students. And what I realized was that the graduate students there were being given completely wrong information from their advisors when they were applying for jobs that were outside of the tenure track. And even down to like your cover letter, you know, they were being told to talk extensively about their dissertations and their cover letters. And when you're looking at an alternative academic job, in a lot of cases, it's just not relevant what your dissertation was about. The fact that you did it might be important, but they want to know about other kinds of skills and abilities that you have. And that's just one small example of the kinds of things that we talk about in the book. It's very practically oriented around how do you put together different kinds of job materials? How do you explore the alternative academic space to try to figure out what are the kinds of um, jobs that you might even be interested in in the first place? All three of us, because we come out of kind of a consulting mindset, really wanted to create a practical guide that would really help people to know the details of what it takes to be successful as an alternative academic at any stage of that career, whether it's just getting started with finding a job or if you're in the middle of an alternative academic career, really working your way up the ladder and expanding what it means for you to be an alternative academic. Now, Tom, this is a big question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna chuck it at you. What are some of the different kinds of alt-ac positions? I can follow on what Katie talked about in terms of finding tons of possibilities. And one of the challenges that we wanted to uh, push against a little bit in the book is that most graduate students, most people who are new in the profession, and even some of us who've been in our careers for a long, long time, see our skills as applying only to the academic segment of the job market. So graduate teaching assistants, assistant professors on the tenure track, going to associate and full professor, maybe you become a chair or a dean. We actually put a chart into the book that shows that that's really one tiny slice of the broad number of possibilities that 
academic training allows us to compete for. So, and as we as we did our research, it got broader and broader based on the number of people that we talked to in the United States and Canada. So, for example, and uh, many campuses, alt act positions typically fall into categories like student affairs, academic affairs, advancement positions, research and development, administration, finance, business affairs. Right. So, jobs and careers within those categories. These are people who are directing their efforts, who serve learners, who serve the people who are doing the instruction, who serve the institution as a whole, or who serve the communities who are served by those colleges and universities. So it's not just people who are working in colleges and universities, but people who are working near them and even beyond. So things like uh, supporting or advancing academic goals in higher education at think tanks or advocacy groups higher education districts, system offices, nonprofit organizations, research institutes, government agencies, all different kinds of places. And as Katie was talking about earlier, you have to pitch yourself differently in those different sectors because the people who are doing the hiring are not necessarily looking at you as a scholar, but are looking to see how the talents that you have gained, such as the ability to do research, the ability to manage projects, all those kinds of things. How do those translate into the worlds in which those jobs exist? Also, a little bit of myth busting here. Uh, Many non-faculty roles are not alt-ac fields, but they are their own professions. We did a little myth busting in the book because my librarian colleagues, they don't take kindly to their work being thought of as a fallback for PhDs who can't get a tenure-track job. At the same time, uh, we do show how somebody with an advanced degree can set himself or herself up really successfully for good, satisfying careers, not just work, but setting up a career identity in an alt-act field. So my next question, uh, I'm going to pivot back to you a little bit on this one, Kevin. How should students start to plan around an Altac career? And there's a lot of different elements that I think go into this planning. What do you think are good ways to approach? Sure. Well, when I talk to graduate students and even recent graduates, I suggest that rather than asking questions like, what do you want to be when you graduate or when you grow up? Uh, start by asking yourself, what problems do you want to solve? And once you have some ideas it then becomes a task of plotting a course to get there that considers any new skills that you need to develop or work experience that could be a stepping stone along the way. One person we profiled in the book is Andrea Colangelo. She's actually a colleague from my doctoral program. And her problem that she wants to solve, she wants to guide students to academic success, period. So she's working toward her three to five-year goal to become an assistant director of a writing or learning center at a university that offers graduate degrees. That wasn't available when she first left her program. So to prepare herself for this role, she's working in an academic skills center at a community college and is drawing on her research skills to study the effectiveness of the support the center provides. So she provides a great example of planning an Altac career that allows her to solve the problems that are meaningful to her. That's one example. Are there any others you might think of, um, particularly for students who are thinking about maybe even sort of leaving traditional academia behind, but looking at, say, the nonprofit world or, or the private sector? Certainly. Well, if you also think about people who are currently in 
tenure track positions or on the tenure track path, they may choose to move laterally to a position that may not even be on a campus. Another person we profiled was working at a university in Pennsylvania for a number of years as a physicist and now is working with startup companies to use the principles of physics to advance certain developments that would move the industry forward as a whole in an academic and as a commercial endeavor. I wanted to, here's another question for you, Tom. Um, what are some ways to meaningfully pursue an alt-tech career? Because planning is obviously a very critical component of this, but that's, that's just sort of get, getting everything on paper. And there's some saying from Dwight Eisenhower that escapes me that plans become meaningless the moment you actually have to start doing something. So what's the what are the next steps a student can take or a faculty member? Absolutely. And th- this is one of the reasons why I really got excited when Katie first brought the idea of this book together. And that is that none of the three of us authors and most of the people whom we interviewed for the book had this kind of guidance. So what's a way to pursue an Altac career? The answer was, well, make it up as you go along or talk to people whom who have the experience that you want to have or whom you see doing good things in the space. And that's not a terribly satisfying answer. So one of the things that we really wanted to do was to try to weed through all of the kinds of stories we were hearing, all the advice guides that have been written, all of the conversations that we had, and to help readers to create a multi-year career map. It's not only identifying the things that you like to do, but it's also trying to figure out where you can help to solve problems, where you can see gaps or trends in a particular industry or a particular field. So, for example, my own case is an instructive one. I got my Ph.D. in 19th century British literature and art history. I wrote two books on the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, a bunch of painters and poets in 19th century England. Six people read those books. And I really was was a little taken aback because when I got my doctorate in 2000, it was under the assumption that what my advisors were telling me was correct. And what they had told me was there are going to be large numbers of people retiring in this field right around the time you complete your PhD, and they're going to need to replace those lines. The first part was correct. We had a great big wave of retirements about 20 years ago. The second part never came to pass. Most of those lines were never filled. And in my field, I later discovered that PhD programs in North America were putting out on the order of 450 PhDs in 19th century British literature. And there were approximately 40 tenure line jobs advertised every year. So one of the challenges was that I wanted to reinvent myself. So I tried to take the skills that I had, which were database management, scholarly bibliography, project management. And I looked around and I thought, okay, I'm working at a two-year college to help them create new online programs and degrees. So what do I do here? Well, I figured out that I could make a name for myself being the person who looks at access, areas of barriers for, ex- for accessibility or barriers to education. And 
in the book, we talk about learning new skills and then also thinking about what your full-time, part-time, and self-directed work looks like. So in addition to the work that I was doing for a paycheck with an employer, I also started to think, well, is there a way that I can get out there on my own hook? Is there a way that I can move into a consulting role? And when we talk in the book about job hunting, when you're meaningfully pursuing that career, knowing what you want to get out of it at first, and then paying attention to the signals you're getting as you are practicing is really important. So we have an entire section about how to grow in the all-tax space. We talk about doing consulting work, and it's not just, oh, you know, you should have some uh, connections in the field. You should give some keynotes here and there. But we actually talk about the nuts and bolts of doing it. How much do you charge? How do you have those kinds of conversations? We have chapters on writing and publishing. How do you become a public scholar or someone who is part of the conversation in a field that is related to academic work? We also talk at length about the Altac career ladder. So if you're going in a tenure track position, your career ladder is very well defined. You come in, you do some instructor work, and then you move from the associate, excuse me, the associate level to assistant professor to full professor. Well, in alternative academic careers, there are similar career steps. So there are entry-level positions for things like assistants, designers, specialists, and technicians. Then associate-level positions that require a little bit more experience and maybe have some supervisory duties, things like associate positions, analysts, consultants, administrators. Then you'll see a title called coordinator a lot as the next level. So people who have managerial and professional experience, and then a director level position where you've got significant experience in the field and you're then given supervisory duties and you're also expected to come up with new projects and be more strategic in the work that you do. So meaningfully pursuing an all-tech career, you have to know what you want. You have to be flexible enough to figure out where you want to go. And you also have to pay attention to some of the big challenges that come along. And we address in the book things like the two-body problem. If you have uh, two members in a committed relationship who both have advanced degrees, how do you figure out where you want to live? How do you figure out who gets the job and who is the trailing partner in that regard? We address a lot of those challenges in the book. So we've got a a structure and a framework for people to follow. And we also provide practical evidence-based, and case-based responses to each of those different big challenges. Katie, do you have any thoughts on this? So I just wanted to add that while we were working on this book, um, as Kevin and Tom know very well, I was training to become a life and work coach, a certified um, coach. And so there's a ton of activities that are also built into the book for that reason, things that we've all been using in different workshop settings and with individual clients that we have who are kind of looking into these different questions about meaningful work. And there's a couple things in particular, really practical things that we recommend. Um, One of them is to do a lot of informational interviewing. If you're not sure what alternative academic careers are, or if you're not sure what kind of alternative academic career you might want, talk to other people who have engaged in those careers. And places like social media are a great place to start connecting with those folks. But we really encourage and we give specific questions to ask when you're doing those kinds of informational interviews. And then the other piece that I think comes directly out of the coaching work that I do now with folks is 
really focusing in on your values. What is it that you are hoping to provide in terms of your own gifts that you want to be sharing in your work life? But what are also the things that you're hoping to get back from your professional environment? What are the practices that you want to engage in? What are the kinds of communities that you want to be um, a part of? All of those kinds of things can really tie your work directly into your values. And I do think that particularly in the graduate student space, we aren't really talking about professional values as much as we probably should be. And that's something that we really talk about quite a bit in the book is how do you tie in what makes your work meaningful into the kinds of decisions that you make about your career? So there's a question I want to train at you really quickly, Katie. It just sort of came to me as you were talking. Um, my, my peers in the humanities frequently like to complain that it's so much easier for folks in STEM, that there are these longstanding industry connections that they don't really have to worry about finding an alt acquisition. Is that true? And if so, how, does, how do people in the humanities, how might they navigate some of those issues? So I think this is such a good question because there's always this idea that the grass is kind of greener or easier on the other side. And this is something I ran into in my research work as well, where quant folks always said that qualitative folks had it easier and qualitative folks always said that quantitative folks had it easier. So I think you hear the same thing when it comes to STEM and humanities. I would also imagine there are some STEM folks that think that humanities folks have it easier because they have such a broad range of what they can do. If you're trained as a critical thinker and a writer, think of all the jobs that that kind of qualifies you potentially to engage with. So one of the things that we do, and I think um, Tom kind of alluded to this in one of his responses, was we walk you through a way of translating what are the skills that you picked up in your training or across your career, depending on kind of the stage you're at, and how do you then translate those skills into a range of other categories. And we try to help you to make explicit connections between what you already know how to do and the kinds of things that will be hireable in different kinds of roles that are alternative academic roles. And I think no matter where you're coming from, if it's the humanities or STEM, that's a good place to start to try to think about what are you bringing with you. And for some people, it's going to be you're a really acute editor and you're very good at editing. And maybe that gets you a role in a publishing house or you're really good at helping people to form community and to do collaborations. And maybe that gets you a role in nonprofits as being a grant writer who's bringing a bunch of people together. I mean, there's all different kinds of ways that those things can translate. But I think that no matter where you're coming out of, it's a good first step to start thinking really concretely about the things that you know how to do well and where you think they're going to be most effective in an alternative academic career. Kevin, I have a question for you. I'm I think this is this is one that at least a lot of my peers, I think, really struggle with. Uh, networking is a foreign concept to many graduate students, especially if you work in the humanities. You're unlikely to be working around a lot of people anyway. And then non-academic networking is also very different from academic networking. So what are some effective ways to go about it? Well, one of the most important aspects of any network is to make it as diverse as possible. So it makes sense to use a variety of in-person and virtual networking strategies. For the sake of time, I'll share two, situational and intentional networking. Both strategies become more successful, though, if you do some prep work in advance, and I'll explain what I mean. First, situational strategies take advantage of being at a place or event that's rich with networking opportunities. Could be a conference run by a professional association or even Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, they have in-person meetups for people who usually connect online on a listserv or discussion forum or something like that. 
before you get to that conference event, you can look up the association's website to find the officers. You can research any special interest groups you might want to join or see if the conference activities have any special sessions designed for new members. Before you go to a meetup, uh, and you could use LinkedIn to look up some of the online participants or to find uh, more about what that group is doing. Often they have a LinkedIn group space as well. But in both cases, it's important to seek out a few people you definitely want to meet and set a goal for one thing you want to accomplish. Even if you're an introvert, it's time to muster up the courage to introduce yourself and tell people what you're interested in doing. It's surprising how often people are willing to help someone who's just at the beginning of their career, the middle, or at any stage, frankly, um, when you just go up and ask. Second, you might try a more intentional strategy. Um, Those familiar with the six degrees of separation research know that everyone is only six or fewer social connections away from anyone else on earth. I love the game Six Degrees of uh, of Kevin Bacon, which makes that point pretty clear. So when you think about networking, you think about the person that you want to meet and how far away they are from you and your network. This could be an author of an interesting research article or someone who holds a job that you might want someday. And so check your existing network to see if anyone can introduce you to that person. And if not, our book has advice on how to request and conduct an informational interview where you would reach out to that person and see if they have a little bit of time to answer some questions you have as you get started in the field. Also in the book, Katie, Tom, and I have described a number of other networking strategies and have listed steps anyone can take to grow their network. Tom, do you have any thoughts on this particular question? And I just wanted to, to add and expand on what Kevin is talking about. In the book, some of the research that was the most fun for me to do was asking people in my networks who their networks were. So in the book, we have long lists of places that you can look. We have not only advice on how to do things like informational interviewing or reaching out to experts in a field, but we actually have boilerplate text that you can choose, select, and modify. So we wanted it to be, as Katie has mentioned earlier, not just a reflection on, but also a how-to book. And uh, one of the big challenges for people who are getting just started in networking is that you don't know what you don't know and you don't know who you don't know. So in the book, we really wanted to focus on making sure that for people in the humanities, in the sciences, in business, in practical arts, all across the curriculum, that we had places where you can start by reaching out and doing some networking with us and then on your own. So the book is meant to be really practical in that regard. Katie, do you have any thoughts on this? So I think networking is so important. And I just want to echo what Kevin was saying about introverts, because I am a super introvert. I am what some people call the introverts introvert. And I have been able to build a network over time through strategies that were really personalized to me and what I was looking to do. And one of the strategies, just to give an example of something that I think is a little bit more creative, is I um, started podcasting. And a couple of the shows that I do were more interview-based. And Zeb, maybe you can identify with this. You get to meet all kinds of really interesting people when you're interviewing them or when you're reaching out to help them share their work. 
And one way of networking, even using things like social media, is to be promoting other people's work in a way where they can see you doing that promotion. They can see you sharing those resources. They can see you making connections between people. And I think for people who are more introverted, who don't want to go to those cocktail hours at the conferences or other kinds of things that just feel really draining, get creative about what networking looks like for you, because I feel as an introvert that I have a really healthy network. And even down to working with Kevin and Tom on this book, I was able to kind of look around and say, who are going to be the right people who are going to bring the perspectives that I want into this manuscript? And I could look across my network and really kind of handpick the people that I thought would be a really good fit. So there's lots of different ways, I think, to have that networking be built over time. Kevin, any thoughts on that? Listening to Tom and Katie just made me think of one more story from the book where uh, one of our profilees described how her husband ended up creating a network connection at a judo class. And so I think the, the key takeaway is to be open to connections wherever you are, even if it's not in a setting where you are intending to make a connection, because those people may have that connection that you need or, or the information you want in order to get to the next level of your career. Great insights, everybody. And before I continue with a question back to you, Katie, you have me absolutely dead to rights. I was drawn to podcasting both because I found the subject material so intellectually stimulating, but also because I hated networking at conferences, but I found I could approach any scholar and just ask them about their work for an hour. And it was so much easier for me than trying to glad hand in a room of 200 people as an introvert's introvert. My last question is to you, and it's really sort of a two-part question. What are the takeaways you want for faculty who read this book? Because there are faculty members who are considering making that career switch away from academia, but then there are also faculty members who have these grad students that they need to attend to, Who and, and faculty are aware there's, a, there's really a jobs crisis going on for tenure-track positions. What are the takeaways here? This is a really good question, Zeb. Um, I think one of the things as we've been working on this book, as people have been finding out that we've been working on this book, um, Kevin, Tom, and I have all started to hear some pretty bad horror stories from graduate students who have been given bad information, who have been completely not supported um, by their advisors as they've been thinking about moving into alternative academic careers. I would say this is certainly a smaller percentage of what people's experiences have been. But I think that one of the takeaways we're really hoping for with this book is to, in some ways, legitimize or validate what the alternative academic career space looks like now, because many of the faculty who may be advising graduate students, their career academics, they would have no reason to engage in the alternative academic space unless they are actively trying to learn about what this means for the graduate students who they are advising. So I definitely think that one takeaway is to try to educate people about what the space looks like right now. We've tried to include a lot of statistics in the book. We've tried to include a lot of profiles from a range of different people to give a really personalized understanding of what it looks like to be in these roles. But I would also say, I think there are a lot of academics who get to mid-career and they start to maybe realize that a faculty role is not for them. And for a range of reasons, they've kind of decided to take a different pathway. And so a second outcome for this book is really to provide advice and space for faculty who want to kind of think about moving into a different career path and to give them a little bit of permission to explore that. 
I think both Tom and Kevin have mentioned that we weren't able to really find these kinds of resources ourselves. There's a lot out there on how to be an effective faculty member, and there is very little out there on how to be an effective alternative academic. And so for anyone who's looking at this, including faculty, including grad students, including people who have been alternative academics their entire careers, this is meant to be a book that is just a resource. It's educational. It's practical. And hopefully it helps people to feel like they can come out of the shadows a little bit and really embrace what it means to them to be an alternative academic. Fantastic. Well, we this has been an extremely illuminating conversation, and I fellow graduate students, fellow recent graduates, I cannot endorse this book strongly enough simply because these conversations absolutely need to be happening about all that careers and the best way to navigate to them. Thank you so much, Kevin, Tom, and Katie for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you.